Welcome to Real Estate Investing Unscripted, a podcast from Fund That Flip, where we explore some of the most creative, innovative, and inspiring stories from the real estate investor community. With expert tips and success stories you won't hear anywhere else, you'll come away with inspiration on how to improvise in the unscripted world that is real estate investing so that you can dominate your next real estate deal. Now your host, founder and CEO of Fund That Flip, Matt Rodak. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of Real Estate Investing Unscripted. I'm your host, Matt Rodak, founder and CEO of Fund That Flip. And uh, today we have a very special guest. He is uh, he has a lot of things, but he's uh, he's a real estate investor. He's flipped over 150 homes, um, has done a bit of commercial investing as well. He's an author with several best-selling books. Um, I think he even owns a racehorse or two and, and may have a few blue ribbons that we can talk about. Um, but most of all, he's an all-around great guy. He's been a, a mentor to me over the years and helped us even get started here at Fund That Flip. So with that, I would like to uh, welcome to the show, Mr. Uh, Jay Scott. Hey, Hello, Matt. Show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here, finally. Yeah, yeah. Awesome uh, Awesome to have you. Um, so look, we could we could talk about a ton of different things today. As I mentioned, you're a, you're a bit of a renaissance man, but I think... Um, for the purpose of the of the show today, maybe, maybe just get us going with a little bit about because I think it's super interesting how you got into the business, um, you know, your first couple of deals, how you kind of thought through those, and how that's led to you know current state and what you're working on today. Absolutely. So back in 2008, I actually was in the corporate world. I spent about 15 years in the in the technology world out in San Francisco in the Bay Area. And my wife and I decided to get married. We met at a tech company. We decided to get married in 2008. And at the time, I was working probably 60 hours a week, traveling two weeks a month. My wife was working about 80 hours a week and traveling about three and a half weeks a month. And while that was great while we were single and, and and kind of like doing what we wanted to do, we knew that once we got married, that type of, of work commitment just wasn't going to be conducive to starting a family, having kids, etc. So the day we decided to get married, uh, we had a long talk about what that would look like, and we both decided that the right decision was to leave the corporate world and figure out something that gave us more flexibility to kind of do what we wanted to do. And you mentioned in your intro that I was kind of a renaissance man. I certainly wouldn't use that description, but what I would say is I have a lot of things I enjoy doing. And so my goal back in 2008 was to try and figure out how I can incorporate all the things that I really like doing um, with making money and having financial freedom and basically being able to, to build what, what's a, these days is, is often called a lifestyle business, um, being able to put the family first. Um, and and then have a business kind of running in the background um, that supports our lifestyle and and allows us to kind of do both both life and work. So 2008, my wife and I quit our jobs. We moved back to the East Coast where our families were to start a family, and we didn't know exactly what we wanted to do. So we we knew we wanted to have this lifestyle business, but we didn't know what this business was going to entail. At the time, I was thinking, I I like baking and chocolate. Maybe I'll open a chocolate shop or an ice cream shop. Uh, Jay's Cookies. I love it. Jay's Cookies. There you go. (laughs) 
Um, my wife is an amazing designer, so she thought about doing something in the graphic design space or the interior design space. And so we get to Atlanta in May of 2008, weddings in August. We decided we're just going to take the summer off and, and figure out what we're going to do after the wedding. So July of 2008, I'm sitting in my basement. I'm flipping through the channels. I think I turned on an HGTV flipping show, which was basically all you, you saw back then. And my wife comes over and she says, hey, we should do that. And I, I thought she was joking because Honestly, I had zero real estate experience. Um, I barely knew how to change a light bulb. And she was serious, though. She said, let's, let's give that a try. We've got a couple months before the wedding. Uh, we can flip a house. I really want to do like the design stuff. You'd be good on the business side of stuff. And so I said, okay, we can give it a try. So I jumped online. I picked up a couple books. I started reading. We started looking at houses. We closed on our first flip property on August 8th, 2008, which was the day we got married. And wow. so basically our foray into real estate started – the day we got married. And so, so wind, weeks, wind us back yeah. to August, 2008. Is that like, is that like when things have had kind of already come unraveled? Were they still unraveling? Like, like, did it seem like a good, a good, good idea to get into real estate in, on August 8th of 2008? Well, here's the crazy thing. And I, I look back and I realize my naivete was probably, um, what, what allowed us to become successful in this business. We were in Atlanta, in 2008, which was probably the worst hit city in the real estate market at the worst point in modern real estate history. So things in, in Atlanta, they didn't get much worse anywhere else in the country, and there wasn't much worse of a time than summer of 2008. Um, you couldn't drive down the street and not see every other house or every third house uh, with either a for sale sign, a for rent sign, um, or a foreclosure notice on the door. It, it really it was unbelievable. And to us, it was, hey, opportunity. So look at all these houses. They're, we've got to be able to buy cheap houses. Turns out you could buy cheap houses. Um, and we bought a lot of cheap houses. The hard part was selling those houses. Mm. And so basically what I like to tell people who are looking to get into this business, at any point that you're going to get into flipping houses, one of two things is true. It's either going to be relatively easy to buy a house and hard to sell it, or it's going to be relatively easy to sell a house and hard to buy it. And so there's no perfect time for flipping houses or anything in real estate. You're never going to you're never going to have that perfect it's easy to buy, easy to sell. Mm -hmm. So these days it's real tough to buy houses, really easy to sell houses. Back then it was really easy to buy houses. I could I could go into the MLS and basically throw a dart and whatever it hit was probably a great deal. The problem was getting it sold on the back end. Yep. So we learned a whole lot that first year about marketing, building relationships with agents, about figuring out what buyers wanted, uh, about um, basically setting our price points conducive to, to the buyers that were in the market. Um, we learned a whole lot about the selling side of the business. And, and so, um, so, yeah, it, it was it – was, in a way, it was really easy, but in a way, it was really tough. And um, 2008 had a big impact on us. So, so talk to me a little, a little bit more about that, right? Because like it, it, when we were at the kind of the bottom of the market, right, and everybody's looking around, like who should we blame for this mess that we're in? Like, 
a, a lot of a lot of flippers, right? You know, were, were pulled into that. Or a lot of speculators were pulled into that. So, like, how did how did you guys feel about like? becoming one of those people when it was probably the most unpopular time to be one of those people? Well, here's the thing. Um, our buyers, and there weren't a lot of them at the time. I mean, there were very few people that were looking for houses, but our buyers were very motivated by the thing that, that was motivating us, that was driving our business, the fact that houses were really, really inexpensive. Mm-hmm. And what most buyers were saying was that 95, 96, 98%, I'm making up numbers, but a very large percentage of houses were not rehabbed. They were they had problems because their the 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 houses were previously owned by somebody that was foreclosed on or that moved out and didn't want to move out. So there was a lot of deferred maintenance. And so the pool of houses that buyers had to choose from was not, not great. Um, and so we were in, in our market and we were in a, a suburb of Atlanta in our market. We were literally for the first year, year and a half that we were in this business, we were literally the only rehabber in that market. So if a buyer came along and they wanted to buy in that county um, and they were looking to buy a house that was in good shape, our inventory was basically all they had to choose from. And so our buyers were thrilled. Um, They didn't look at us as the enemy. They didn't look at us as the people that caused the problem. They looked at us as the people who were going to solve their problem as the solution. So they could go out and they could buy a $90,000 house. And back then, stuff in Atlanta was ridiculously cheap. Same houses these days are two, 250,000. But they could go out and buy a $90,000 house that needed a bunch of work, that had a bunch of deferred maintenance um, that hadn't been touched in years, or for an extra ten or $15,000, they could buy one of our houses that was completely renovated, fresh, brand new, um, not brand new, but cosmetically brand new. Um, and and so it was really, it, there was, there was little choice for them. They, they were thrilled. They were, they were thrilled to find a great product for just a little bit more money. Um, the problem was for us, there are only a few of these buyers out there. So we had to capture every single one of them. So we, we figured out a good formula that allowed us to capture the largest percentage of buyers in this price range, in this area. Um, and, and it really forced us to get good at the sales and marketing side of the business. Now, fast forward, fast forward 10 years, and it's really hard to find deals. And so we've had to get really good at the other side of the business as well, the acquisition side of, of, of the business. So between 2008 and 2018, it's given us the opportunity um, to get really good at both sides of the business. And again, there's never a perfect time to be flipping houses. It's always either going to be difficult to buy or difficult to sell. Um, so being able to do both of those well, and obviously everything in the middle well, um, is the key to basically being able to be successful in this business, regardless of the market. Sure. So has your strategy changed at all kind of from the 2008 to, to current, current day in terms of, you know, price point that you want to be in at the type of end buyer that you're trying to serve? Are you going up market, down market, kind of wherever the opportunity is like, you know, on a fast forward basis, right? Like how has kind of your, um, your thinking and strategy had to change just kind of because the market is has really done a 180 um, since since 2008. Sure, uh, it's a great question. I get that question from a lot of people, and my answer is basically instead of thinking about 
what strategy you want to follow, whether it be flipping or rentals or notes or, or commercial or, or self-storage or whatever it is, um, instead of thinking about the price point, do you want to do $50,000, $500,000 or $5 million houses? Um, all of that stuff, instead of thinking about what you want, instead go out and look at what the market is offering you. So there are going to be I, – I live in Maryland now. Um, in Maryland, um, we can't find hundred or $150,000 houses. Um, so if I'm going to flip in Maryland, I'm flipping in the two to $400,000 price range because that's the sweet spot. Um, I'm flipping a certain type of house. Um, I'm flipping in certain areas because that's where the buyers are. Um, I'm doing certain types of flips. Um, if I go down to Atlanta where we also do a bunch of projects, the price point's different, the type types of houses are different, the finishes are different, um, because the buyer demographic is different. And so instead of saying, I want to be the guy that does $200,000 uh, colonial style houses with certain finishes in, in certain areas, instead I say, where's the opportunity? And, yep. and I go after the opportunity. And if you want to be successful in this business, you need to be flexible. Um, I think back to 2008, 2008 to 2010, 11, pretty much, I, I think I can almost safely say 100% of our deals were foreclosures that we bought right off the MLS, REO deals right off the MLS. 2011 and 12, most of our deals were short sales. Uh, 2013, 14, 15, we started moving into new construction. Um, 2016, 17, 18, um, we've kind of been doing a combination of all of these things, but we've been doing a lot of um, a lot of uh, off-market marketing. So we've been sending direct mail letters, and we've been working with wholesalers. So basically, over the last 10 years, our strategy has had to change several times. Um, what was working in 2008, buying foreclosures, REOs, right off the MLS, that doesn't work anymore. What was working in 2011 and 12, the short sales, that's not really working anymore. New construction, infill construction, uh, that's tough to find these days. So if you want to be successful, you really need to be able to be flexible and you yep. need to follow the market. You need to know what's going on. And then you need to modify your business strategy to suit what the market is telling you is going to work right now. Yep, yep. You reminded me, I just reread the book, Who Moved My Cheese. Have you read that book? I have. Yeah, so like you're reminding me of that, right? Like the the, the, the cheese and where it's at today is probably not where it's going to be tomorrow. You got to keep kind of making sure that you're, you're finding where the new cheese is. So listeners, if you haven't read Who Moved My Cheese, go check it out. It's a couple hour read, but it's super, super interesting. So yeah, I want to shift gears a little bit. You mentioned you mentioned kind of in your intro, um, you know, it was important to you and your wife to to set up a lifestyle business, I guess, as 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 they're called today. What what has that meant to you guys? And kind of what's it meant in terms of how you think about building your business? Um, you know, and some of the trade offs that you you know you're recognizing um, relative to the 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 type of business and the way you run it and. You know, do you have people working for you? Do you not? Like, why is that something that you, you do or don't want? Like, like why? Do, like, I guess maybe just talk us through what that the lifestyle business means to you, and kind of how that's you know allowed you certain things, and maybe constrained you in other areas of of growing your company. Absolutely. Uh, so, for me, a lifestyle business means focusing on the things that generate the most income, so that. 
the other stuff isn't getting in the way of my family life and the other things I want to be doing. So I know a lot of, just to give an example, I know a lot of investors who will do work on their own houses. So they'll buy a flip house, they'll go in, they'll do the painting, they'll do the cabinets and the carpentry, they'll do the minor plumbing and the electrical, all the stuff that, that they think they know how to do to save money. And while there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, it's important to realize that if you're painting your house, basically what you're doing is you're saving yourself the $15 an hour that you could, that you would otherwise be spending to hire painters. Now, I don't know about you, but personally, I don't want to be working for $15 an hour. And if I'm doing the task of something I could hire out for $15 an hour, I'm basically earning that $15 an hour back. And so I'm working for $15 an hour. Mm -hmm. I didn't leave my corporate job to earn $15 an hour or $20 an hour or $30 an hour. Now, for people who are thrilled to to earn 15 or 20 or $30 an hour, then absolutely no reason not to paint your own houses or do your own electrical or do your own plumbing or, or do whatever you want. Um, but if you're not, if you wouldn't take a job for $15 an hour, don't do the jobs in your house that would be saving you $15 an hour. Does that make sense? Yep. Yep. Okay. So basically my philosophy and my wife's philosophy has always been, we want to earn $200 an hour, $500 an hour, $1,000 an hour. So we always, uh, we ask ourselves, what are the tasks in our business that are generating $500 an hour? That if we had to hire them out, it would cost us $500 or $1,000 an hour to hire them out. And then everything else, we, we bring other people in to do it. And so basically there are three tasks that, that generate $500 an hour in our business. So one is acquisitions. Um, so finding new properties, that's something that if we find, um, a a deal, if we spend 20 hours finding a deal and it generates 20,000 in profit, that's a thousand dollars an hour for finding that deal. Um, second is finding money. So either, um, building relationships with, with companies like fund that flip, building relationships with private lenders, building relationships with banks, um, if again, if I can find a deal with 20 hours of work and I can find the money to fund that deal in 20 hours of work, I'm making $1,000 an hour if I, if I clear $20,000 on that house. Um, and then third is basically the negotiation. So my wife and I are both good negotiators. So we like to be heavily involved in any aspect of the business that, that involves negotiation. We can easily save um, a couple hundred dollars in a few minutes doing negotiation. So for us, that's, that generates hundreds or thousands of dollars an hour. But those are really the only three parts of our business that generate $500 an hour or more. So those are the three parts of the business that we focus on, and we hire everything else out. So we hire out our contracting, we hire out our real estate agent tasks, we hire out our inspection tasks, we hire out um, all of our our project management tasks. Basically, everything else in the business is hired out, and we spend all of our time on those three things, finding deals, finding money, and doing the negotiating that we need to do to, to make sure that we're saving money appropriately. Got it. Very cool. So, so spend your time... I guess another way to put it is highest and best use. It's the highest and best use of your time, whatever that happens to be. Maybe it is painting. Um, but if it's not, like pay someone else to do it. 
don't 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 uh don't step over dollars to pick up pennies as the saying goes right exactly and i talk to a lot of people who say i love painting or i love doing carpentry that's great then do it and consider it your hobby um but don't do it because you're trying to save a few dollars here and there because what you're really doing is you're taking time away that you could be spending doing the high value tasks if you spend 40 hours next week painting your house, that's 40 hours you could be spending finding your next deal. And if you're painting your house, you're not finding your next deal. And so you're earning $15 an hour or you're saving $15 an hour instead of making your $1,000 an hour by finding your next deal. I have a saying here in the in our company that I've 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 always figured out a way to make more money. I've yet to figure out a way to make more time. Um, you know, so like uh, fo- focus your time on on the things that matter most. I love it. So Jay, let's, let's get into the kind of the theme of the show here, which is, you know, real estate investing unscripted. So, um, you know, you flipped 150 houses, you've been at this for 10 years or more. I'm sure you've seen some things and had, have had some interesting, uh, you know, things pop up on projects. Uh, maybe you could, you could share an example or two that, you know, no matter how well prepared you were going into the project, something happened what was that thing that happened? Kind of what did it cause and how's it, you know, how has it informed your thinking or strategy or due diligence on a go forward basis to, to try to prevent something similar from happening, happening again? Yep. Um, so that's a, that's a question that has a very, very clear answer in my mind. There was <laughs> one, there was one particular situation um, that happened early on in our business that has transformed our entire philosophy around business and, and real estate and everything else that we do. Um, we had, and I think this was probably our third or fourth house. Um, so we're probably end of 2008, early 2009. And we had a buyer, the house was under contract. And back then, again, buyers were hard to come by. You find one and, and, um, you try and, you try and keep him or her because the next one, you don't know how long it's going to take before they come along. And so this buyer came along, put down a deposit, um, said they needed something like five weeks to close. Um, we get towards the five week closing and the lenders telling us everything's great. Everything's good. Um, we get within a week of closing or a few days of closing and the lenders like, yeah, everything's good day before closing. Um, we can't get in touch with the lender. So the lender hasn't sent the, the close, the loan package to the, the closing attorney. Um, and so we don't know what's going on the day of closing, uh, no loan package, no lender. We can't figure out what's going on. So buyers tell us, yeah, we talked to the lender. Um, we just need a few extra days. Um, so we signed an extension. And that extension turned into a second extension, and a third extension, and a fourth extension. Before we knew it, it had been like three months, and we still hadn't closed. And we hadn't talked to the lender. The lender stopped returning our calls. Like We didn't know what was going on. Finally, after about three months, we literally drive to the lender's office, um, and we catch him there, and we say, hey, what's going on? And what he tells us is, yeah, there was a problem with the uh, with the buyer. He had a lien or something, um, and he just didn't think he was going to be able to get it closed. But he's been trying, and he's ready to give up. And basically told us, yeah, you should cut this buyer loose and go find another buyer. So we spent three months trying to close this deal, um, and we finally find out that the buyer had been lying to us, the lender had been lying to us, and there was essentially no chance this thing was going to close. So I was livid. Um, I, I start just 
freaking out, and, and I'm, I have lunch a couple days later with another real estate investor that I knew at the time, and I'm telling him this story, and um, and I'm like, have you ever dealt with a lender that's that bad? And he basically said to me, you realize this is all your fault. I said, what are you talking about? The buyer lied to me. The lender lied to me. They've been dragging us along, and, and it, it, how is it my fault? And he pointed out that there was about a dozen different times throughout this transaction that I could have made different decisions to mitigate the risk. I could have asked for more earnest money. Um, I could have asked for um, the list of conditions, closing conditions from the lender in writing, so I would have seen that there was a, a lien issue. Um, I could have um, asked the, the buyer to put down additional down payment. Um, I could have, there are so many different things I could have done. I could have cut the buyer loose and started looking for another buyer and basically kept this buyer as a backup. Um, but I trusted the lender and I trusted the buyer and that trust led to me being taken advantage of. And so what it, and I'm not doing a good job of explaining this, but basically what it, what it made me realize at the time was I can't put my trust in other people. I can't rely on other people to do what's in my best interest. I need to always know what the risks are and I need to take steps to mitigate those risks before bad things happen. And what that means is I need to take responsibility for every last detail in my business. And if something goes wrong, it's not my project manager's fault. It's not my contractor's fault. It's not my agent's fault. It's not the buyer's fault or the lender's fault. It's always my fault. And I need to treat every part of my business as if something goes wrong, it's my fault, and then take the steps to mitigate those things going wrong from the beginning. So for me, that bad experience kind of drove the attitude and we, we drive this home with all of our employees. If something goes wrong in the business, at the end of the day, the buck stops with me. It's my fault. Um, but I want my employees to take that same attitude. If, if a contractor doesn't do what he's supposed to do, it's my project manager's fault. And if the lender doesn't do what he's supposed to do, it's, it's my real estate agent's fault because she's the one that should be staying in touch with the lender. Um, at the end of the day, it's my fault, obviously. But People need to take responsibility for all the things that happen and never say, I didn't have control over that or it's somebody else's fault because at the end of the day, it's your business and it's your fault. And that philosophy for the last 10 years has really allowed us to, to keep control of our business and to ensure that, that bad things don't happen without a mitigation plan in place to to address them if they do. We we prepare for the bad things that happen. We predict the bad things that could happen, and then when they happen, we're prepared for it. Yeah, I, I love that story, and I think I think the thing um, the thing that's super interesting about this, and I had I had this mind shift happen to me at some point in my life too, is like when when that happens for you, like how much more empowered do you feel though? Right, like when when you start being like, oh, this is my fault. It also means like. I can fix it, right? Where it's like when it's like, oh, this was this guy's fault. You have no power to fix that. And it's the same problem, right? It's like it's not that it's not that the problems change. It's just like your view on, oh, this is my this is my problem. I own this problem, which also means like I can fix this problem or at least make sure it doesn't happen to me again. It's like super freeing almost, right? Like it's like hard as it is to like own up to some of these things. Like once you get past the fact that no one cares that like you keep screwing things up, um, it's super empowering. I, I, I find. 
I, I love saying that's my fault. It won't happen again. Whether I'm saying it to me or I'm saying it to somebody else, right. I agree with you. It's very empowering to to admit and to really own any mistakes that happen in your business, even if they're not mistakes that you directly made. If it's in your business, they're mistakes that you could have mitigated. Yep. And, and so, yeah, I agree with you. It's very empowering. Love it, Jay. It's been great. Appreciate uh, appreciate the time. I know. Um you, you mentioned a little bit your wife and yourself are both good negotiators. You wrote a you wrote a book on negotiating recently. What what can you tell the listeners about that book? Where they can where they can find it? Kind of what's the what's the gist? Absolutely. So um, uh, one of the the I guess the side businesses you could say that I've gotten into over the past couple of years because I, I love teaching, I love writing, um, is I've written several books about uh, about real estate and flipping houses. Um, the first two I wrote back in 2013, the book on flipping houses, which has now sold over 100,000 copies. I'm, I'm really excited about that. Awesome. Um, the book on estimating rehab costs for anybody that that wants to get a better handle on how to figure out what your rehabs are going to cost you and how to create a good scope of work for your rehabs. And then last year I wrote... By, by the way, I, I, I make all of my analysts that come to work for us read both of those books of Jay's. So they're great books. Pick them up. Uh, <laughs> and then last year I wrote the book that I, I am most excited about um, because it really is a passion of mine. Negotiating is a passion of mine. Um, and I think my wife and I, especially my wife, um, is, is really, really good at it. So my wife and I, along with uh, another... Um, Another uh, real estate investor, Mark Ferguson, wrote a book called The Book on Negotiating Real Estate, and it's all about um, how investors can can better negotiate to to get better deals and um, and to make more money in the business. And so I'm really excited about the book. And, and so if anybody is interested in, in taking your negotiating to the next level, check it out. And all these can be found on Amazon, presumably? That is correct. So search J. Scott, letter J., Scott, S-C-O-T-T, check out his books, um, book on flipping houses, book on estimating costs and negotiating. Uh, beyond that, Jay, where can, uh, if listeners want to reach out or, or learn more about you or your business, where can, uh, what's the best place for them to, to get a hold of you? Yep. So um, I don't write much on it anymore. I just don't have the time. Um, but for the last 10 years, I've had a website and blog uh, at the numbers 123flip.com, 123flip.com. And on that site, I detailed um, over the first several years um, in gory detail my first 50 projects. So you see pictures, you see videos, um, you see the breakdown of financials to the penny. Um, so if you want to see what a real rehab looks like um, and and what some of our, our first 50 real rehabs look like, uh, take a look at one, two, three flip.com and uh and you can get the nitty-gritty of of all of our first 50 flips and and i think uh for people just getting into this business you'll find that very enlightening all the good all the bad all the ugly <laughs> hopefully more good than than bad or ugly but uh definitely lesson, got better oh yeah lessons also learned on those ugly ones where we we find out so listen this has been great jay really really appreciate your time i think we could uh we could probably chat for hours so we'll have to we'll have to get you back on the show but um really really appreciate you being here thank you all out there for listening uh to this episode of real estate investing unscripted check out our website as well fundthatflip.com for other great resources we're posting things uh constantly around uh different topics around real estate investing we just posted some some pretty cool stuff around uh uh different tax strategies and tax pitfalls from brandon hall who was on a show earlier uh i think episode two um so check some of that stuff out over at fund that flip 
Otherwise, uh, thanks again, Jay, and uh, look forward to uh, to uh, having you all on the show uh, next time out there listening. I'm your host, Matt, signing off. Mm-hmm.